you have your Bible, we'll be in Luke 7 tonight. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one somewhere on the table. If you don't own one, man, please take one of those. It's our gift. You can have it. Uh, If you're going to wrap it in duct tape and leave it in your closet, don't take it. But uh, if you're actually going to use it, by all means, take it. So uh, a couple real quick things before we get going. Um, We have officially launched our um, student ministry. So we have the first gathering Friday night, um, and then they have what we're kind of doing is um, once a month Friday night, say we'll join in and do like a missional community where they come in, they hang out, um, they invite their friends and all that kind of stuff. And then we're kind of mimicking some of our DNAs on Sunday, so they get here early at 4.30 and just have an opportunity to sit down and hang out and catch up on life and be prayed over. Um, so that is officially official. Um, that's a big, that might, okay, yes, that's kind of cool for me. What's up, James? How are you guys? Um, so that's, that's big for me. Uh, I'm excited about that and what the Lord is doing in all that process. Um, another thing you guys can join us in with as we're praying and pursuing and looking for a Sunday morning location um, so that we can maybe attract a few more families and um, just kind of get in that direction. And so we've been praying, we've been looking, Dahlonega real estate can be pretty weird. Um, so you can just join us in praying as we pursue that process. Sound good? So this is the part of the sermon where I'm supposed to tell you a funny joke, get you laughing, oh, it's so funny, intrigue you, suck you in. Uh, I'm not going to do that tonight. Um, So what we do, we just kind of teach through the Bible. And so uh, with that, sometimes it doesn't allow us to jump over or miss some of the bigger, um, harder, meatier applications that we have to deal with. And so tonight is one of those. Um, And so Luke 7 is where we're going to be. We're going to pick it up in um, verse 18. So we're just going to kind of dive into it. I would love to, if you were here last week, we finished up Luke 6. Um, Luke 7 opens up with two different stories. Um, One, Jesus healing the centurion's servant, which is a great story. I love that one, but I didn't feel like the Lord was leading us there. Um, The the other one, Jesus raised a widow's son. I would have loved to taught that one uh, because basically like you have a, a funeral procession coming through and then you have Jesus and his crew coming through and they just kind of collide. And Jesus looks at the widow, like the dead dude just laying there and says, hey man, you're not allowed to be dead anymore. Get up. And he gets up and starts talking. So you've got like all these people that are crying and mourning and weeping, and then you've got Jesus' crew that are just like, man, we see this guy do crazy stuff. What's going to happen here? We roll into a servant, and then a massive party breaks out. I mean, instantly weeping turns to celebration and partying, and they're all, like Scripture says, they were fearful. Like, who is this guy that just raised someone from the dead? And then instantly it turned into, and they started glorifying God. Biblically, to remix, that means they were scared because of what this, who this guy is, and then a huge party broke out. Can you imagine that party? Can you imagine a God that just says, hey, I know you're dead, you're not allowed to be dead anymore. Can you imagine the widow who, like, the widow's son, this is it, so like, this was the boy that was supposed to take care of her, that was supposed to provide for her. She's done, she's alone, she's on her own, and then, like, nope, your, your son's back. Just a party that would have broken out. I would have loved to talk through those two, um, but here is where we're going to be, um, the messengers of John the Baptist in um, John 18. I'm going to read you guys a letter first. Um, this is one of the things that as I was praying through and trying to decide which direction the Lord wanted us to go, um, 
Uh, the, the branch is part of the National Collegiate Church Planning Network, uh, which sounds really fancy and it's not really. Um, it's just basically churches that are going after college students in college towns, not exclusively. We're not a college church. Everybody look at me in the eyes. I want you guys to hear this. We're not a college-only church. Everyone get me? Uh, Matthew Kennard, look at me. We're not a college-only church. I just want everyone to know this. That is one of the myths, the misconceptions that's come around the branch is that we're exclusively college. That's not true. One of the reasons we're trying to move to Sunday morning is to get away from that stigma. Um, we're not a college-only church, but we're part of this national collegiate church planning network where um, churches like us go into college towns and uh, reach out to the town as well as the college. So the, Brian Fry, long story short, Brian Fry is over this, and he shared this post, um, which I'm going to read to you guys, and it just solidified the direction I think the Lord wants us to go tonight. So this was written uh, February 19th, so just not that long ago written by a guy named Dave Browning, a pastor in Seattle at Christ the King Church. Here's what he said. Dear friends, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I trust him. Now comes the biggest test. I was diagnosed today with an inoperable brain tumor. Kristen, his wife, and I were on a cruise last week with my parents, celebrating our 30th and 50th anniversaries, respectively. Joy turned to sorrow on the third day of the cruise when I started struggling to do basic things like read my watch or write a note. Within hours of the ship's docking, I was in an emergency room studying an image of a mass in my brain. Here's what this means. I have months to live with diminished capacity unless God intervenes. With each passing day, I'm seeing my vision, memory, and speech slip away. Number two, I hope to explore what limited care options there may be in Seattle through the Cancer Care Alliance. Alliance. Already I've been treated very kindly by the medical professionals as I've seen. And number three, I'm asking God to heal me. My life is in his hands and I can't think of a better place for it to be. If he chooses to take me home, I'm good with that. I'm ready for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Philippians 1.21 I'm going forward, I've decided what I'm going to do, what I can, while I can, until I can't. Very simple. And so he goes on to explain uh, this, the, that next Sunday, which would have been last Sunday, was his last sermon that he was going to preach at his church. Um, he was speaking at one last conference. Um, he goes to, I'd love to, uh, love you guys to pray for my wife and my kids. He's got three kids. Um, and here's his last sentence. I know where I'm going and I'm ready. Though this is a very sad day for me, filled with tears, I've said that there is, I have to say that there is a peace in the mix that defies understanding. He has proved himself to me many times, and I trust him. God bless you, Dave Browning. Now, I told you, this is supposed to be the, a funny, get everyone entertained, and, uh, but this is just not where the text goes. And so for all of us, we've probably been in this kind of circumstance before, haven't we? Where we've got a friend, a loved one, a friend of a friend, uh, someone that starts walking through this diagnosis, starts walking through something. Um, I remember just, it was 2009, so a few years ago, and there's a guy, Matt Chandler, that I listened to, uh, really respect, he's got a church out in Texas. Uh, same thing, had an inoperable brain tumor, um, so I had to stand before the church. He made recordings, he made videos for all of his kids, um, was just preparing himself to die, and so... Through that, the Lord has miraculously healed him. He's still here. He's still preaching. Uh, he's gotten even more angry, which is funny. Um, but he's still around her. There's another guy, Levi Lusco, uh, who's a church uh, pastor out in um, Montana, who's like crazy hipster dude, but like playing in a church in Montana where they like wear plaid and cut trees down. It's just funny. 
Um, a few years after that, this is about 2013, I think, 14, um, five or six-year-old daughter passed away in his arms from an asthma attack. Now, you talk about this stuff, and you say, okay, um, those were all pastors, right? Like, here's the, like those were the guys who were supposed to be creme, so our heart breaks for those guys, the, the creme de la creme, the, the perfect, like, if people die, we've got deaths around us all the time, but, like, we can justify, oh, those are different situations. Those people were different. Those people were this. Those people were that. But, but these guys are, like, the pastors, like, they're, they're the most obedient ones, right? They're, like, they're the perfect ones. They're the professional ones, which we all know, if you know me by any stretch, that's not true. But that's just natural where our mind starts to go to. It's like, what about those guys? What about the guys that have been faithful? And we mentioned it some last week. The biggest, one of the biggest things I've seen from Christianity is this, uh, this generation, this rising up of, God, I did everything you asked me to do, and you still let this happen, Right? I've done this, I've done that, I've, I've listened to you, I've tried to be obedient, I read my Bible, I go to church, I've done this and this and this, and you still let my parents get divorced. Or I've done this and this and this, and you still let my parents or grandparents pass away. I've done this, and you didn't open this door like you, I thought you would. Um, I did everything. I met my end of the bargain, God. Why didn't you meet yours? This is kind of the natural relationship we have with the Father. And so um, tonight, we're just going to read about that, that exact sense um, God, you didn't show up. So we'll pick it up, Matthew 7, 18 through 35. What I'll do is I'll go ahead and read the whole thing, and then we'll stop and pray, and then we'll kind of work through it a little bit. The disciples of John, this is John the Baptist, reported all these things to him, all the miracles, everything he's doing, the sermon that he's preaching. And John, calling two of his disciples, sent him to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Verse 21. In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard, that the blind receive their sight, that the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it's written, Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Verse 28, I tell you, those born of women, sorry, let me read that again. Verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Skip down to verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. We play the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he is a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet... Wisdom is justified by all her children. So this is a lot. I understand this is a big chunk we're going to try to get through. Uh, but first, let's pray, and we'll start diving in. 
Um, Jesus, we are so grateful for you, um, God, and we pray that as we dive into your text tonight, and um, as we literally um, ponder and look at your words, uh, Father, the words that you spoke, the, the words that uh, were written down that came out of your mouth, Father, we pray that uh, we would take them in and we would understand and we'd be able to apply them. Uh, even though it might seem weighty, Father, this is the best news ever. And so, Father, we just pray that you would speak to us tonight. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Now, if we go all the way back up to verse 18, uh, here's what's going on. Um, we've got the situation where the disciples of John reported all the things to him. So John sent out two of his boys, two of his disciples, that, hey, go find Jesus and ask him this. Are you the one because this is really bad for me? Now, we've probably all kind of been in this situation, right, where um, life isn't necessarily working out like we thought it would be. Um, we're like, I mean, I've grown up in church. I understand the gospel. Uh, here I am, and this is not what I thought it was going to look like. So we, we send messengers. We pray. We say, hey, God, uh, are you really God? Because uh, right now this isn't what I thought it would be. This situation that I find myself in is not what I thought. And here's, this, here's why John is asking this. Um, John is currently sitting in prison for doing what Jesus told him to do. Okay, so John has found himself in prison. Uh, the reason, which is just why I love John the Baptist, um, because the king, well, I'll just read it. Matthew 14 says this. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. So John the Baptist, just a little prophet out in the wilderness preaching to people, um, called out the ruler of his day and said, you're not allowed to marry that woman because that woman used to be your brother's wife. Do you think that would make the king mad? Right? Do you think, like, who are you to tell me I can't have what I want? Uh, because these guys, I mean, they basically thought they were gods. Who are you to talk back to me? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go ahead and throw you in prison. How do you like those apples? So John finds himself in prison for we got to catch this, obedience, for obedience that God had given John the task, because a lot of us go, oh, well, yeah, of course you're in a bad situation. You're being disobedient. You're not listening to what God wants you to do. John found himself in prison for being obedient. So already we have this kind of like, wait a second, God, um, if, if I'm obedient and you're going to send me to prison, uh, this, this isn't the same gospel that I understood. I thought when I followed you, everything was supposed to get better. But dude's in prison for being obedient. And honestly, uh, verse 5 of Matthew 14, And though they wanted to put him to death, he feared people because they held him to be a prophet. Meaning, they wanted to go ahead and kill the guy right now, but they were so afraid of a Jewish upheaval and a riot that they kept him alive. So, John, being obedient, finds himself in prison, um, close to death. The only thing that's keeping him alive is Herod's fear of a riot breaking out. That's where we find John. So when John sends out his messengers, hey, Jesus, are you really him? Because, like, uh, I'm, I'm in a tough spot. You've got to help me out here. Verse 20, and when, men, and when the men, John's disciples, came to him, they said, hey, John the Baptist has sent us, uh, saying, are you the one to come or should we look for another? And I just want you to put a pin right here because we're going to talk about this more in a little bit. One of the things that Jesus, or John had for him was community. He had his boys. He had his disciples, the ones that were running back and forth, the ones that were encouraging him, the ones that were staying with him, even though he was in prison. Here's one thing that I'm, and again, we'll talk more about this later. Kyle mentioned it earlier. I do not understand, period. I do not understand how you make it through the Christian world without community around you. I just, I just don't get it. 
what we're going to find more as we start diving into this story is how impeccable community is for John, how it is for Jesus, how it is for all the disciples. Um, as we start walking this Christianity journey where things don't always end up better, for a lot of times it ends up worse, how do you do this thing without community? I just don't get it. Verse 21. And in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. On many, he bestowed sight. Verse 22, and Jesus answered, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. This is huge. That the blind receive sight, that the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. What he's doing here, what Jesus is doing is quoting Isaiah. So Isaiah is kind of known as the fifth gospel. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. But as far as the Old Testament goes, Isaiah talks so much about when the Messiah comes. Here's what the Messiah is going to look like. Here's what he's going to do. So everything that Jesus told John's disciples to send back was all listed in Isaiah. John would have known this. The disciples would have known this. You know I'm Messiah. Here's what I'm doing. Stay here and watch all that I'm doing. But he leaves a certain part off. See, in the Isaiah benediction, the last part is the, line, the blame, or excuse me, the, the lame will walk, the blind will see, and the captives will go free. But he leaves that part off. So John saying, or Jesus saying to John, yeah, I, I am the Messiah, but you're not getting out of prison, man. Now how often, just let's be real with one another, how often do we start struggling with God, like, God, where are you? You're supposed to be here. I found myself in a position like John. Maybe it's not prison. Uh, maybe it's uh, in a broken home. Maybe it's in a bad school situation. Maybe it's filling the blanks. And instead of looking around and seeing God's grace all around you through your friends and family and being encouraged, you get more discouraged. God, why do you love them, but you don't love me? Why are you showing up for them, but you haven't shown up for me, real story, um, my wife's dad died of a heart attack a couple years ago. And as we're mourning, as we're going through, um, the day after, they had a family friend that also had a heart attack, but he survived. So looking at that story, I can remember my wife saying, God, why him and not my dad? Why did you choose to save him and let my dad pass away? Like, what is this? So the encouragement is supposed to be to John, hey, listen, um, look what all I'm doing. I'm still here. I'm still active. I am the Messiah, but, but things aren't going to go well for you, but it's okay. It's okay because here's the deal. Um, John's circumstances didn't change. They got worse. And some of us know this story. So the disciples go back, hey, yeah, he is the Messiah, um, but, but he left this part off. And not too much later, um, he gets beheaded, right? In prison, gets beheaded. You can go read Matthew 14. It talks about it. Um, Herodias, the woman that divorced and, and remarried all the kings, uh, his daughter came in and started dancing and uh, made Herod so um, excited. I'll leave your imagination to why. This is a sick, twisted, perverse community. So excited, he said, tell me what you want. I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. Whatever you want, it's yours. So she goes and asks her mom, hey mom, uh, I've just got offered all this because of my body, basically. What, what, do we, what should we ask for? What do we want? Herodias said, go back and tell me you want John the Baptist's head on a platter. Done. And so when you read um, verse 8, 
And the king was sorry because of his oaths, but he, because of the guests he commanded to be given. Verse 10, he sent and had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. So let's just stop here for a minute and kind of recap, because this is, did you know this is in the Bible? A little twisted, right? Here's what's happening. John, the greatest born among all men, go preach this message of repentance. Part of that message of repentance was calling out the systems of the day, the rulers of the day. You cannot do what you've done. You need to repent. That, th- that makes them mad. Because of John's obedience, they throw John into prison. Because Herodias, the wife, was so embarrassed of what was going on, um, she asked her daughter to go dance seductively in front of Herod. Herod said, whatever you want, it's yours. Okay, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. It happens. Do you think Jesus knew that at the time? So Jesus leaves that part off. Yes, the lame will walk. Yes, the blind will see. Yes, I will heal the sick and the dead. But I'm not going to tell you yet that the captives will go free. I can't tell you that. Because you're going to be beheaded basically because of a stripper. Now this starts to put us in a little awkward situation, right? Um, Pastor, that's not the gospel I heard when I grew up. Exactly, that's why we have to do some work. Verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowd. So we still got to remember at this point, we don't know that John is dead. He's not dead yet. The disciples, his disciples just went back to pass on the message. Um, That's coming in the next day or weeks, okay? Verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning, uh, what did you go into the wilderness to see? Did you go to see a reed shaken by the wind, meaning just a guy talking out there about whatever, No, no, John had strong conviction. That's not what you went out to see. Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing, meaning kind of effeminate, kind of a ruler, talks about like that would have been a king at that day. No, you went out to see a guy that was dressed like he lives outside. Yes, you went out to see a prophet. Verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. None is greater than John. So here's what we have to see. John, in prison, um, knows that his death is coming soon, sends a messenger, hey, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Because this is going really bad for me. Goes back, yeah. But does Jesus ever condemn him for doubting? Does Jesus go, hey, did you guys just hear what John said, his disciples said? Uh, can you believe that guy has little faith? What, what a ridiculous notion is that? Uh, that, that guy was supposed to be a prophet, but now he's in prison. He's scared for his life. He's all freaking out, so he's doubting me. Can you believe this guy? No, Jesus still says, uh, that guy, John, he's the greatest born among women. Even though he's struggling, even though he's doubting, even though he's asking really, really good questions, he's still the greatest among women. So I think for a lot of us, we have this notion, don't doubt, don't question, don't ask. Have you ever read Psalms? It seems like all David does. Oh God, you're so good. Where are you? Like that's literally the book of Psalms. Constantly back and forth. And even by that same standard, uh, didn't Jesus pray in the garden, God, is there not another way? Is there no other way for this cup to pass? But I'm going to do your will no matter what, but isn't there another way? way. I think here's the biggest thing that we have to understand about John, because where our minds naturally want to go to is John is being punished for disobedience. 
Uh, I do this still all the time. My brother used to make fun of me about this growing up. Um, whenever I stomp my toe, whenever something bad happens, um, whenever I swerve in an old lady going through a funeral procession, whatever it looks like, um, if you didn't hear that story, go listen to last week's podcast. Uh, whatever it looks like, whenever something happens bad to me, my first thought, still uh, unregenerate, I mean, I'm trying, I'm pursuing the Lord, but there's still an unregenerate part of my heart that goes, God, what did I do to deserve this? Anyone else? I mean, I remember when I was fifth grade, running up the stairs, tripped and caught a shinner on hardwood, and I literally cried out, God, why do you hate me? And my brother looked at me and was like, you're an idiot. What are you talking about? I'm like, no, no, that's just got to be in my mind, and I still wrestle with this. That's got to be how this kingdom thing works. When I mess up, he punishes me. When I do good, he rewards me. Right? That's just how this thing has to work. That's how most of us have grown up. You do good, we're going to reward you, we're going to keep you up, we're going to encourage you, but the moment you mess up, we're going to tell you about it. We're going to spank you, we're going to punish you, and so we naturally start taking this into our relationship with the Father, but here's what we have to understand. John is not being punished by being killed. John was fully obedient. He's the greatest born among women. He's not being punished. There's more to this story, because I could preach it that way. I mean, I could be a false proclaimer of the gospel, and I can manipulate every single one of you in this room and say, see, see what happens? There's unrepentant sin in John's heart, and if you don't tithe, you're going to die. <laughs> I could do that, and trust me, there's people that do it all over the place, but there's more to the story than this. Keep reading verse 29, or verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? And although Jesus is talking about that generation, I think it fully applies to this generation as well. Verse 32, they're like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. We play the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he is a demon. But the Son of Man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. One of the reasons that Jesus um, was really messing a lot of people's minds up, including John, was when, when they were hearing the prophecies, when they were awaiting the Messiah to come, they thought that the Messiah was going to overthrow the government. They thought that he was going to come riding in. He was going to right all the wrong. He was, he was going to create a huge upheaval. So when Jesus showed up, just kind of under the radar, cheerful, happy, as we keep reading through Luke, man, like he never pressed in that direction. They said, like, are you really him? Are, are you really Jesus? Are you really the Messiah? Because I thought when you came, you were going to like go confront Herod. I thought when you came, you were going to throw out all the sacrificial system. I thought you were going to create a huge upheaval. I thought you were going to look different. Now, how many of us have that same experience? We say, God, are you really here? Because I think if I were God, I would do this differently. Now, that's a kind of a maybe bold proclamation to have, but we've all thought it. Don't even act like you hadn't. At some point, I mean, I got in a discussion, I'll say discussion, that's a good way to say it, got in a discussion uh, with a friend, of me, a friend of mine at Georgia Southern, and he said to me, if I was God, I would be better than your God. 
that if I was put in that position, I would rule and reign better than you. Have you ever, guys ever seen uh, Evan Almighty? Right? Same situation. That we think if we had that responsibility, we could rule better than he would. So John was looking for the wrong king because his life was about to end. And how many of us are looking for a different Messiah? We thought, man, like, I, I thought becoming a Christian, everything was going to become better for me. I thought things were going to get, that's what I was told, that's what I always heard. And so this is this illustration, um, the kids were playing out in the marketplace, and that day you had a real big marketplace, so that, like the day laborers, that's where they would go. If the, they had any kind of uh, announcements or meetings, all of that would take place in this kind of big area right downtown within the city walls. And so the kids were playing, and you've got two kids over there pouting. Right? So the guy's like, oh, no, no, we'll, we'll play what you want. Do you want to dance? Okay, we'll play music. You guys come dance. And the kids just sit there and pout. Okay, so you want to be sad? That's fine. We'll play sad music. We'll cry with you. And the kids just sat over there and pouted. Because it wasn't their idea. They weren't in control. So he's saying, like, that's, John the Baptist came and you ignored him. I've come and you're ignoring me. Because you're not, I'm not the God that you want me to be. I'm not the Messiah that you're looking for. We've done this, and you didn't come. We did this, and you're not coming. Uh, that means you're not walking. You're not coming into the kingdom. And the main people that are leading up this charge were the Pharisees because they're going to have to give their control back to Jesus. They were power hungry. They loved power. They loved control. And they knew that they were, if they were going to follow Jesus, they're going to have to give all that back. But I think a lot of us, we are so disappointed. We've been so frustrated. We've been sin, so broken down and really discouraged in a lot of our walk because we thought Jesus would show up in a different way than he did. We thought that, hey, when I did this, when I answered this way, when I, so here's my question that I just want to wrestle with in the next couple minutes. Uh, who, what Jesus are you following? Is, is he really enough? What Jesus are you following, and is he really enough? Um, there's this thing called prosperity gospel. Anyone ever heard of it? Prosperity gospel, okay. Um, the, the, the basic gist of it is, uh, if you follow Jesus, you're going to be healthy and wealthy and everything's going to be fine, right? Sounds good, sign me up. It's just not true, okay? Tons of reasons for it not to be true. Um, we can look anywhere. I mean, just logically, we have to read the Bible. We have to look at Christians. Um, so you're telling me the guys that are being right now uh, beheaded by ISIS don't have enough faith. That doesn't make sense. So you're telling me that like missionaries in remote places of the world, that if it was ever talked about that they were Christians, their life would end right on, that they don't have enough faith because they're not wealthy and they're not healthy, right? So you're telling me that um, 11 of the 12 disciples uh, were killed for their faith. I think that's wrong, 9 of the 12, regardless, um, because they didn't have enough faith. So this idea of the prosperity gospel, meaning if you just follow Jesus, you're going to have tons of money and you're going to have tons of health, whatever you want. Like if you just give me 500, I'll give you 5,000 because that's how the kingdom works. If you sow 5,000 in the kingdom, we'll give you 500,000, right? I mean, how many people have written that check to the TV preacher online? Because I want more money. Like I, this is how this works, right? Like I give to you and then I'm going to get more and it's going to be great and it's going to be awesome. That's the idea of the prosperity gospel. Now, we know that's foolish. That's not what we preach here. But we all kind of have maybe an undercurrent of prosperity gospel in us. Here's what I mean. I was at an event a couple weeks ago, took my daughter to it. and It was a great event. Everything was good. It was fun. Uh, but towards the end of it, they led all the kids in the sinner's prayer. 
Anyone ever heard of the sinner's prayer before? So at the root of it, I'm not, I'm not totally knocking. I don't mean this to be controversial. I'm just kind of giving an example. Um, we talk to my daughter about Jesus a lot. It's just what we do. It comes up in conversation. We try to teach her wherever we can. Uh, but in this moment, there's a guy on the stage saying, hey, if you want to follow Jesus, if you don't want to go to hell, repeat this after me. And I'm just sitting there just cringing a little bit because I've been telling my daughter, my wife has been telling my daughter about Jesus, but here's what we understand from that prayer. If we don't want bad things to happen to us, we need to believe in this fairy tale God named Jesus. So my daughter's five is going to say this prayer because not that she really knows or loves or accepts Jesus, she just doesn't want to go to hell. Right? From a very early age, she would understand, and a lot of us have understand the gospel to mean, I'm going to follow Jesus because he's the only one that can get me out of bad situation. I don't want to go there, therefore I'm going to follow Jesus. So even though we don't believe necessarily that if I follow Jesus, everything's going to be perfect for me, I'm going to get tons of money, I'm going to get tons of riches, we understand from a very surface level, if I want things to go better for my life, I need to follow Jesus. The only problem with that, though, is when we start running into scriptures like this, where John the Baptist gets beheaded for doing what was asked of him. Where the disciples get devoured, their lives torn apart for doing what was asked of them. You're starting to see the rub? The kind of disconnect of what we've grown up, what we've understand. Follow Jesus, he's going to make your life better in an earthly sense. But we're not talking spiritual sense. Here's what I, I wanted my daughter. When we got in the car, I just told her, hey, boo, uh, everything that guy said was right. But you know that scary place he was talking about? You know the scariest part about that place? That Jesus isn't there. Because I don't want to threaten my daughter into the kingdom. I want her to know that the worst thing that could happen to us is be apart from Jesus Christ. That is the beauty of the gospel. Not that if you don't do what he's asked you to do, he's going to send you to a really bad place. So I better believe in this king that I don't really know, I don't really believe in. I just know I don't want there. So if he's the only one that could save me, I'm going to follow that guy. What I'm trying to teach my daughter and what I want us to understand tonight is it's not about any of the consequences. We just want to be where Jesus is. Is Jesus enough for you? Regardless of what's going on in your life, is Jesus enough? Um, there was a girl uh, when I was a youth pastor down in Alpharetta. Anyone ever read the book Job? Okay, um, it, it's weighty. It is, it's, a, it's a hard one to read. Understand. She was, uh, at this point, probably a sophomore in high school, super intelligent, super smart. So the plot of Job basically is Job is one of the greatest living um, Satan's like, I can get this fool, Jesus, if you let me have access to him, I can, I can get him to denounce you. Jesus said, okay, don't kill him, but you can do whatever, because I know his faithfulness, I know he's not going to walk away. Long story short, uh, through Satan, by God's allowance, Satan takes away his family, takes away all of his farm, um, gets skin, rashes, and just nasty stuff all over him, till all of his friends are saying, just curse God and die. Your life is so bad, curse God and die. And so this girl at, at, uh, in Alpharetta said, if that's God, I don't, I don't want him. If that's what God is, if, if God's going to bring me punishment, if God's not going to make everything in my life better, but there's a potential, if I follow him, things might get worse, then tell me why I would actually follow that God. And so we had tons of conversations centered around this idea. And eventually, I mean, to my knowledge, she's not a believer today. Based on this misconception that if I follow Jesus, everything is going to get better. If I follow God, 
If I do what he's asked me to do, I'm going to have the greatest life ever. Everything I want is going to be mine. Everything's going to be perfect. There's going to be no death. There's going to be no divorce. There's going to be no poor. There's going to be no nothing. If I follow Jesus, everything is going to be perfect. Uh, write down Hebrews 11 for me. Go home and read it. Because he, what Hebrews 11 is great for, it's kind of like the biblical hall of fame, if that makes sense. So uh, he goes through and talks about all these men that have done, and women that have done incredible things. But I'm going to pick it up in verse 33. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, ob- obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. But here's kind of where it starts to change. So by faith, look at what all these men and women accomplished. But here's what also happened by faith. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn too, and they were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering around in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves. And all of these, though, commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us they shall not be made perfect. So in the hall of fame of the Bible, you've got men and women that accomplished incredible things for the kingdom, and you've got men and women that were killed for the kingdom. So in the hall of fame, the who's who among the Old Testament, you have men and women that were uh, encouraged that saw incredible things take place that should have been killed but weren't, but you had men and women because of their faithfulness and their obedience that were killed by the kingdom, for the kingdom, for their obedience. All right, are we tracking so far? Told you this wasn't going to be fun, was it? But here's where it starts to get better. Flip over to Philippians for me. And this is, this is kind of where we're going to land the plane a little bit. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, pick it up in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So here's what he's saying, and here's where we have to land. Yes, following Jesus may end badly for you. Following Jesus may, I mean, one of the things that we knew coming up to plant a church here, um, statistically, a lot of church plants fail. And I remember very early on, I was sitting with Matt and Kyle uh, and said, hey, like, uh, you guys just need to know some of the anxiety that I'm feeling, um, because if this church doesn't succeed, we could be homeless. 
<laughs> we don't know what's going to happen to us. We don't know. So things could go, now granted America, worst case scenario is not that bad. But at the same time, there's a bunch of fear in following after him. And there's no success, there's no um, given glory that comes just from being obedient. Um, you guys ever heard of J.D. Greer, pastor out in North Carolina? He's a stud, I love him. He was praying one time about revival to break out in his town. God, we want to see so many people saved. Uh, like us, we have 26,000 people within a 20-minute drive. We want these people to know the gospel. And he felt like he heard God come back to him and say, um, what if I did that, but it wasn't through your church? What if I answered your prayer? What if there was a crazy revival that broke out in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, but it wasn't through you and it wasn't through your church? Would you still be happy? What if I answered your prayer but in a different way? So for a lot of us, we just kind of ask that question to ourselves. The things that we want, the things that we long for, the things that we desire, but what, if, what if Jesus answered that but it wasn't for you, it was for your neighbor, it was for your friend, it was for your family member? Is Jesus enough? For us. Now, one of the worst things about being a preacher, a pastor, I call myself a preacher, I never say that. Uh, I'm a preacher, just because of all the stigmas that come with preachers. I'm a preacher. Uh, I'm sorry. One of the things that comes with preparing messages, let me put it that way, is having to wrestle through the text first. Having to wrestle through what are the true implications of this? What does this really mean for me? Now, right now, uh, my one-year-old has the flu, which means my wife is home with her, which is good news that she's not in here, because this is what this means. If I'm Job, and the Lord, for whatever reason, decides to take my whole family from me, can I honestly say Jesus is enough? If, for whatever reason, um, tonight is the last night, all you guys hate this message, no one comes back, and we close down the branch, is Jesus enough? If, for whatever reason, I go home and I have zero money in the bank account, which isn't that far from being true, is Jesus enough? If everything that I love is taken from me, is the love of a God that sent his only son to purchase redemption and righteousness for me, is that truth enough? Do I love Jesus because he loves me so much that I literally don't need anything else in the world. I just need him. Because if you fast forward back to the story of John's disciples coming back and saying, hey man, it's incredible what Jesus is doing out there. It's incredible. You should, I wish you could see it. I know you're kind of locked up right now, uh, but I wish you could come see it. Uh, but, but John, here's what they didn't say. Jesus didn't say he was going to set you free. In that moment for John, he had to sit there and say, okay, praise God for what he's doing. Jesus is enough for me. My course here is finished. I'm done. Get me out of here. It starts to change the way we view the kingdom. It changes the way we view scripture. It changes the way we view this. How many of us would honestly pray or honestly say, um, Jesus, if I've accomplished everything you wanted me to here, take me home. You've given me a task to accomplish here. If all of those have been accomplished, then Jesus, I just want to be with you. Then take me home. 
If I've done, if, if all for me was to um, get some men and some leaders to raise this church up to, I don't know, 80, 50, 60, 70 people in this room, Jesus, if this is what you accomplished for me, if this is what you wanted for me, even though I have a wife of almost eight years, even though I have four kids, if this is what you wanted me to accomplish here, then take me home. And get me out of here. I'm, I'm finished here because, as Philippians would say, you are our prize. The fact of knowing you surpasses everything else around us. That everything is vanity. Um, you should go read Ecclesiastes sometime. It's a really chipper. It'll go great with this message. Because what King Solomon is talking about, everything, everything is worthless. Everything is vanity. Here's the, the, literally the richest man ever. Bill Gates can't touch this dude. Everything that I have is vanity. Vanity of vanity. Get your eyes, what he would say, get your eyes over the sun to what's eternal. All of this is, is just worthless. If you even look at Paul, Paul would say, man, like, this is excrement, basically. All of this is rubbish. Go Google rubbish. There's kids in the room, I can't say it. All of this is just foolishness here. But do we really view Jesus that way? I mean, if, if our lives were to wake up tomorrow, everything is taken away. Is Jesus actually enough for us? So here's what I've been doing this week, and here's, as we start to wrap up, here's what I encourage you to do. Wrestle with that question. For John, that is a question that he was forced to wrestle with. And I would rather you wrestle that question before you're forced to wrestle with that question. For, for me, for my prayer for you guys, I would rather you come to that conclusion on your own, but sometimes God's going to force your hand to that conclusion. Am I really enough for you? And just as you start wrestling, as you start pondering through this, Whatever is more sweeter than Jesus, just write that down. Because that's what the Bible would call idols. Anything that we put above Jesus, anything that brings us more joy, happiness, success, anything that we put above Jesus is called an idol. And we need to repent from that. And we need to turn more towards Jesus. So I know uh, one of the great joys of being in ministry is, is I know a lot of hearts in this room. I know a lot that's going on. And so just one of the big questions I would ask was, if your current situation doesn't change, is Jesus still enough for you? If, you, if, if, if what you're praying for earnestly does not change, is that going to affect the way you view Jesus? Because what Jesus is asking us to do very clearly early on in Luke is make sure that, we, that he is enough for us no matter what comes. That Jesus is it. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Lord. There's nothing greater. There's nothing sweeter than Jesus. So if you're in a rough spot and if your situation doesn't change, is Jesus enough for you? Or maybe you just never understood growing up that, like, this is the application. That I thought Jesus just made my life better. I didn't think I actually had a relationship or had to pursue him. I just want to get out of the mess that I was in. I mean, you guys have heard that there's no atheist in a foxhole. I just said a prayer saying if he would save me. He did, but, like, now there's no real communication for us. We're just kind of, we're good. If I need something, I'll give him a shout. Kind of like Uber, like, hey, man, come pick me up. Cool. All right, I'll see you in a little bit. See you next week, man. Thanks. Same time, same place? Sure. That's what our relationship with Jesus has turned into. Is that really the beauty of the gospel? And if you're not there yet, praise God. 
If nothing in your life has made you question if Jesus is enough for you, man, like, that's common grace. That's good grace that is brought upon your life. Praise God for that. But I'm, I'm pressing in. I'm asking you, wrestle with this question. If everything was taken away, is Jesus actually enough for you? Is he enough to sustain you through that period? So here's how I want to close tonight. We, we close almost every night with communion. Um, this is the time for us to admit, like, yes, Jesus is enough for me. That what he did on the cross, that what he did uh, when he willingly died in my place, uh, that his love was so extravagant for me, that he picked up the cross for me, walked it to Calvary, took my place on that cross so that I can have a right relationship with him. So yeah, yeah, Jesus is enough. His love for me outweighs everything else. Everything else is futile. Everything else will go away. But Christ is enough for me. But one of the things I mentioned earlier, and I, I want to end like this. Um, I, I know what it feels like to have no community. And I know what it feels like to feel like Jesus isn't there. And I know what it feels like to pray and pray and pray and you just feel like there's no answer. And I don't know what it feels like to be John the Baptist with the messengers coming back saying, hey, yeah, that's really him. Um, but he's not, he's not choosing to save you now. I don't, I don't know that level of despair, but I, I know what it feels like to pray and have certain expectations and be longing for something and start to waver and start to doubt, is Jesus really enough for me? And like I mentioned before, I, I don't understand how you can do that without community. I don't understand how you can walk through life feeling like, I don't know where Jesus is. I'm hanging on by a thread. The only reason I'm here tonight is because I was hoping to get good news. And I, I'm telling you, there is good news, that Jesus is enough, and you have found a community we can press in, and we can challenge, and we can encourage you. We can hold you to that. All the way to, and I maybe shouldn't say this, um, those messengers that came back were the same messengers that carried John to his grave. So even if Jesus chooses not to answer, even if Jesus chooses not to save uh, that guy with the, Dave with the brain tumor, even if Jesus chooses not to do that, this community around you is never going to leave you. We've got nowhere else to go. So if you're struggling, if there's something going on, if there's a situation in your life tonight that you are struggling, you've asked, you've pressed in, you feel like God's not present, I want you to know there's a community around you that loves you and, and longs to pray for you. And it's just an act of boldness. If you feel like you're there, I don't want to stop and like, oh, we're just going to pray for you. That's a great Baptist thing to do. I want to pray for you here tonight. I want people to rally around you and pray for you here tonight. So if you feel like you're in that situation, would you just be so bold to stand up for us so that we can rally around you and gather, there we go, galley, and pray for you? Because I know how lonely that can be. So I don't want this opportunity, I don't want to preach the gospel and let this opportunity pass without praying over someone that feels like they're at their wit's end because they feel like Jesus isn't present. Is anyone there tonight? No? I mean, it's, it's fine. Yeah.
Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, we, we want you guys to fall forward, like she was saying. And so we just want to pray. I saw Jen stand up. Uh, you and Kyle, come here. For sure. Is there anyone else that, like, as a family, we can just rally around you guys and pray for you tonight that you feel like Jesus isn't there, hasn't been there for you? Is there anyone else? We good? All right, let's get all crazy charismatic. Uh, Can we, like, literally rally around them and pray for them? If there's anyone else, this is your moment. Come stand with them. If your situation doesn't change, is Jesus enough for you? If your situation doesn't change, is he enough? Oh, Jesus, we're so grateful for you. God, we're grateful that you didn't come just to give us uh, a life of no problems. You didn't come um, for that, Father. You came that we could have a right relationship with you. And Father, we know that there's still sin. We know that there's still brokenness. We know that, um, Father, just following you doesn't mean everything's going to get better. Following you means we get you and that you're enough no matter what comes. So Father, as we Um, pray as we talk to you as we walk through life even though our current situations um, might seem like you're not present father we know that we always have you we always have your word we always have jesus which you are enough but we father we know that there are a bunch of moments like john and like some of the disciples and like some of the uh, many 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 believers in history and even us tonight in this room that we feel like god maybe you're not enough for us right now that you haven't shown up in how we thought you would. So God, as a church, as a body, we just want to pray and encourage Kyle and Jen and anyone else, um, God, that you are good, that you do love us, that even if nothing else changes in our current situation, um, God, we want to know you and love you and be loved by you and know that you are enough for us no matter what comes. That even if nothing else changes, if nothing else happens, God, if what we're praying for never takes place, God, that you are enough. That literally everything else, you can take the world from us. As long as we have you, we're fine. God, let that be the heartbeat of Kyle and Jen. Let that be the heartbeat of us as a church. Father, let that, let that be our heartbeat that, that because of how good you are, nothing else matters. Because of how gracious you've been. Even if for whatever reason you're choosing not to answer our prayers, you're choosing not to lead us in the way that we would want. Father, you're doing that because you love us. God, you're doing that because you're graceful and we don't see it or understand it, but God, we know that you're enough for us. So could we learn from John the Baptist? Could we learn from the apostles? Could we learn from history? Could we learn from your word that you are enough? no matter what happens. That because you chose, Father, because you chose to give up your only Son, because you sent Christ for us to rescue us from sin, because you long to have a relationship with us, that nothing else matters other than you and your glory and your grace. 
that you love us. You love us. And because of that love, let nothing else matter. So God, would you bring idols to our hearts tonight? Father, would we repent from what's holding us back from following you fully? And as a church, what a prayer we could pray that we would follow you until death. Because I am yours and you are mine. So God, would you bring healing? Would you draw near? Father, would you be enough for us? That's in your name that we pray. Amen. So as you guys are grabbing a seat, we're going to open up communion once again. And let communion tonight be a declaration for us that, that yes, Jesus, you are enough. Even though we struggle, even though we doubt, even though we don't see your goodness and your graciousness sometimes, it's there. That in your nature you are love. That's what communion is. That's what we celebrate. It's literally love poured out for us. So as we pursue Jesus, as we follow Jesus, let that be our prayer. That God, no matter what else happens, you are enough. So we're going to continue in worship. Communion will be open. And um, like always, I'll be in the back if you want to pray.